Cageclub.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody i'm nico and i'm kevo and this is mcu spider-man homecoming part two or as i like to call it the spider-man homegoing Oy. last episode we talked about all of the incredible behind the scenes that went into taking that first trilogy and turning it into a failed trilogy and then bringing us this we also talked about everything up through when peter was saved by the iron drone now we're going to take a look at the second half of this movie kevo did you realize that we would have so much to talk about with this movie? I guess I didn't realize how dense it was packed and how much went into creating it. I think I didn't realize how long we would go on about the early stuff and BTS stuff, but, you know, it does make sense. As we pointed out many times, Spider-Man is a hugely iconic character and was specifically a hugely iconic figure in our child and teenhoods. So I'm not surprised that there was a lot to say in the end and there's so much to say about this movie because they packed so much into its two-hour runtime i know it says it's 133 minutes but 10 minutes of that is absolutely credits fyi and something else occurs to me this is probably the solo film with either the second or third most guest spots because this has appearances from captain america iron man happy it shows us you know, 45 really strong seconds of Pepper. And I feel like that's a lot of characters. Yeah, I agree. And introduces a whole host of iconic Marvel characters brand new into the MCU with the Sinister Six, as we mentioned, all of Petey's little high school friends. The blonde woman who's in charge of the morning announcements is actually Betty Brant. They made her uh, one of Peter's student friends in this version. I always forget that Liz is actually also a character from the film. She's Flash's girlfriend there. And then, of course, Flash, who, I swear to God, if they don't reveal that he has been gay this whole time and in love with Peter by the time those kids graduate, he's so obsessed with Peter and keeps calling him penis uh, euphemisms. Like... I think he smacks him. Yeah, he smacks him on the ass at one point. Dude, it's okay to come out. It's 2019. I also love these reinventions of so many of these characters. I feel like there was nothing you could do anytime you tried to show Harry Osborn at this point. It's just fucking Harry Osborn. Anytime you try and show me Norman Osborn at this point, it's just fucking Norman Osborn. And I just get so bored of it. And I feel like this franchise has found a way to make me care about some of these characters by utilizing characters that the first franchise maybe overlooked. And frankly, I don't really remember enough of what I've seen of the Garfield franchise, and I haven't seen everything. I, uh... So, so much of this franchise for me was a fresh start with Spider-Man on my end, a fresh start with Spider-Man on their end, and I'm absolutely excited to see Far From Home when it drops right after Endgame will be leaving theaters in a move that does not make Disney happy at all. 
No, it doesn't, and I get that, but it's still nice to know that we have something to be a palate cleanser immediately after Endgame, good or bad, whatever our feelings are going to be on this film, and I'm sure we're going to have a ton of both. So I am glad we have something so quickly after that movie to give us a shot in the arm and keep us running as the MCU continues. You know, it's important that it's a character who did get decimated, because we know those characters have to be coming back. They have contracts and movies were in production. We all knew this. The other reason it's important that it's Peter and Spider-Man is like we said last episode, he is so iconographic of the idea of joy and growing into yourself. And that's why so many reiterations of the character work, whether you love Spider-Gwen or you love Gwenpool or aranya or spider woman or spider girl there's a female spider character for you or you might love scarlet spider or venom there's a male spider character for you he's a really iconic powerful idea and it makes us happy to know that peter will ultimately be safe and frankly of all the iconic marvel heroes that people knew even before the mcu started we can't know what the outcome of those characters are going to be after endgame we can know about spider-man but iron man black widow cap Hawkeye, Hulk, Thor, even a few of the others, we need to have some mystery left as to who will survive. But Spider-Man, you want to know that Spider-Man is going to be okay. He's a great face to put on the fact that there is still more MCU to come. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we did discuss the Spider-Man trailers in two different special update episodes, so we even know they're going to be infusing this franchise with other characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I do think this movie made that possible. Take a look overhead. Hey there. There goes the Spider-Man. I think something that's interesting, and will transition us back into discussing the film, the point at which we left it, is the fact that Michael Keaton's Vulture will be returning for Spider-Man Far From Home. We're still not yet sure exactly what that capacity will be. And frankly, I'm not sure how I feel about the character overall. I don't know whether we're supposed to sympathize with him or if we are supposed to see him as evil or if we are supposed to understand that he's gray. The scene that we are coming back to, which is where he kills the pseudo-shocker, and it really pushes his villain into a much darker area. They make a joke of him saying he thought it was the anti-gravity gun, but... He seems so remorseless in killing one of his, you know, they're not henchmen. This is a team that we're looking at. Vulture might be the one that we latch onto as the villain of this film, but it's really a team of criminals, much like Ant-Man, who we're supposed to sympathize with a little bit from the fact that they all lost their jobs and are just trying to support their families. So that was a weird choice to make. And other than the fact that Liz is ultimately going to give the Vulture a unique view into Spider-Man's world and Spider-Man's life, any one of them could have been the one to fight Peter. In fact, later on, other members will fight Peter. So there is some logic to saying, hey, no, this really was like a team villain film, even though fewer people directly fight Spider-Man in that very Sam Raimi, big punchy punch way. And I'm really excited to get to the Liz reveal because it's something that I don't think I remember seeing coming and there is really nothing to seed it. 
I thought it was such a brilliant choice because up until that point, most of the high school stuff and most of the hero stuff is pretty separate. Even as we get into this next sequence of the attack on the Washington Monument, you know, his friends aren't being attacked for any other reason than something that he fucked up. But this is a foreign element that he has no control over from his high school life that affects his superhero life that comes hurtling in. Like, it was a really cool choice and a really cool sequence once we get to it. But first we have Peter trying to track down this team of thugs and going on a school trip to Washington. We're seeing a lot of school trips, apparently, if we're going to see him going to Europe in the next one. I actually think that this sequence is probably my favorite sequence of the film. It is the one that feels the most like a two to three issue Spider-Man arc to me. I can imagine someone like Dan Slott for a recent writer or even a classic writer like Stan Lee writing this arc of them going to the Washington Monument and Peter having to save the day and something about this coming up later on and informing a villain of something. All of this genuinely works for me. And... It's one of my favorite Brave Peter moments because I feel like the Peter that starts out in Civil War would not be capable of this. But the Peter who believes that Tony Stark believes in him, that Peter can do this, and that's the difference. You know, it's interesting, and I feel bad saying it, but this is probably the sequence that I would have cut. The problem is I don't disagree with anything that you said. I enjoy all of it. I think it's well done. I think it's entertaining. I think the sequence where he's locked up with Karen in the damage control facility goes on perhaps a little bit too long after a certain point. I like that it had some time for him to bond with Suit Lady, aka Karen, and learn different things about what his suit can do. But it has one of those jokes that I really hate in it. He spends several minutes doing all these different things with his suit, and then Karen says it's been 37 minutes. I actually find it physically impossible for him to do all of the shit that we saw him flash through inside of 37 minutes and even just an hour or two would have been more realistic but still hilarious the gag is then inverted when he's trying to break out of the bunker and karen says the attempt that worked was 247 he made 246 previous attempts to that that would take hours and I know it's a dumb thing to nitpick, but when you have that sort of cartoonish distortion of what time would realistically be, it just ruins the moment for me. It just takes a little more consideration to make it more accurate. It undermines so much of the severity because it makes it sound like he, what did they say? He's got like 1,437 webbing commands to choose from or something? Some ridiculous high number like that. And he's able to go through it in 37 minutes. I mean, he's not the Flash. He's not zip, zip, super speedy. This is Spider-Man. And he's a scientist, even if he's a teen scientist. And I feel like he would want to understand what he's doing. And for a franchise that pays so close attention to its continuity, that when Peter is spying on two of the thugs, they mention how Lagos and the Triskelion are still under cleanup years later. You, you, you can pay attention to your own continuity. Like, you're smart enough. I'm just asking you to put a little more consideration into, you know, that sort of work. I enjoyed a lot of the Washington DC sequence, but especially since the film is two hours long, there's so much that happens in it. This is what I probably would have condensed. The only part of it that's truly necessary to the plot is 
later on, Tomb, it helps Tombs make the connection that Peter is Spider-Man because something happens out of state where Spider-Man should not be that Peter also happened to be. So it could have all been cut down into like five minutes instead of 20, but it's also 20 minutes that I enjoy. It's one of the reasons I wonder if Spider-Man should have just been a TV show in the first place. And it's the kind of thing I'm hoping that they're going to accomplish with Disney+. Plus. So many of these Marvel movies, the comment I made, even from Iron Man, was I was shocked they didn't stretch out Iron Man coming home into its own film. And then I was shocked him getting revenge on the people who came after him wasn't his own film. And then I was shocked bringing down Stain wasn't its own film. And I feel like so many of the Marvel movies sped through so much. I can imagine a version of Captain America that ends with him saving Bucky. Mm-hmm. And that would be the entire first film. Period. Yeah. I can imagine a first Ant-Man movie that ends with a, a compression that takes the Falcon sequence out and then the Falcon sequence is in a sequel. Like I could see how so many of these movies could have been broken down to like an hour and 25 minutes and then had a whole lot more filler put in and they could have been turned into two and three movies. I love this sequence for feeling like a short arc between two bigger arcs in a comic. It just lends a little bit of that Marvel credibility and kind of that almost that way that Disney animated movies had all those classic segments. You could kind of break down a Disney animated classic into its movements. I feel like a lot of the Marvel movies have that level of segmentation. I agree, and I do like it. There's also some really awesome characterization moments in this. There's a portion where Liz is on the phone with Peter who's calling to apologize and trying well while he's while he's trying to get in touch with Ned and she says I would have been mad but I'm more worried and it was a really cute moment because it it didn't diminish her and make her oh my feelings for this boy mean that I'm not mad about this academic thing but she also wasn't like cruel and needlessly bitchy which is also a direction that is frequently gone in with this goddess type figure that a young boy is usually in love with it really humanized her it made me really see where I could see her caring about him as a friend and even potentially more I also really liked when Peter goes to crash through the window. He specifically says, Karen, I'm on my way. He's talking to his suit. I feel like in 2002, he would have said Liz. And I just find stuff like that so reductive. You barely know this girl. It's weird that you're using her for your inspiration. You're being your own hero here instead. And I liked that. But then I really didn't like that Karen told him to kiss her. To step back a moment, I could also see him needing to save Harry in a situation like this. So while I do understand that there are some definite gender issues there, it's more that everybody in Peter's life is helpless until they're turned into a villain. But I agree with you as well. He never should have had a robot computer brain tell him he should try and make out. Like, that's that's irresponsible heteronormalizing. But I do appreciate that they didn't try to evoke any Gwen Stacy image when she falls down the elevator shaft and Peter has to web shoot to save her. They specifically did a moment in The Amazing Spider-Man where at one point Peter webs Gwen from falling and they purposely made it look like the way the figure is structured when Gwen Stacy's neck snaps, but then it doesn't in that movie and does at the end of the second one. And I found a lot of that really tasteless. That was a very serious, iconic moment for the Spider-Man franchise, and I don't think it was something that needed to be poked fun at. So I had been worried they might do that here, and then ultimately was glad that they didn't. There's another moment here that I really liked, where we see Toombs reacting to what's going on in Washington. And, you know, we assume that he must be concerned because Spider-Man is there. And again, it's another 
mystery reveal to the fact that Liz is actually his daughter. He's concerned for his own daughter. It makes me wonder if there had been a way in which they were going to cut this film that we did know the whole time that Liz was his daughter. At one point, Peter has some line where he mentions just typical homecoming on the outside of a jet fighting my girlfriend's dad. And that so sounded like a soundbite for a commercial. I wonder if they hadn't been sure how they were going to cut this and ultimately did go with mystery. Especially because that's sort of misrepresentative of the situation in general. Mm, yeah. And I think they did manage to balance it pretty well. I remember being surprised when I saw it the first time, though kind of eye roll because his love interest dad is always a bad guy. Yeah, here more on the nose than some other times, but yeah. So then we get Peter starting to be sort of a truant. He gets detention for ditching the academic decathlon. The moment where he lifts the lockers and has a little hidey hole, uh, I found it obnoxious at first until we're reminded that's where he's hiding a suit later in the film. So I guess for the callback, it's cute, but it's a little too TGIF for me. So then we get to him using enhanced interrogation mode on Donald Glover's character, which is ridiculous and hilarious. That fucking ghost face voice. One of the things that this movie did best was humanized so many of these big moments in kind of a gentle way instead of being like oh god he's getting all punisher with it he's bad at it he's actually bad at using his super suit and i love when he's like i'm not a girl i'm a i'm a boy i'm a man that's so 15 it was really great it was really cute when he webs his hand to the car he's like you deserve that you're a criminal goodbye mr criminal it keeps spider-man that mentality he needs to be i love wisecracking spider-man but the wisecracks need to make sense in some ways it makes me want to lay off of my anger at the whole you remember that old movie the empire strikes back because yeah someone his age might say that but the only way that line makes sense is if he is saying that because he doesn't assume everyone knows star wars because he has to know what those are called he builds the lego death star with ned they built in the band room during a montage of showing Peter moving on without his powers, but we'll get to that. But, like, he knows what the Death Star is. He knows what Ned's impression of the Emperor is. He know would know what an ATAT -AT walker is. So, like, that has to just be a, a youthful thing of assuming old people don't get his references. It can't be, I don't know what this silly old thing means. I can't work a rotary phone. Okay. I like that, and that works for me. What also works for me? is the next sequence. The next sequence is incredible. I didn't realize until I was looking at my notes just now, but the timestamp on the next sequence is less than 10 minutes. I really would have thought it was longer. They pack a lot of huge action into this moment. It's really cool. I love that Peter so colossally fucks up here. It's a Staten Island ferry moment where he messes up an FBI bust while trying to take down the Vulture and his crew. It's very frenetically paced with Tony calling him in the middle of it. He's bizarrely frank on the phone, talking about him giving fatherly support when he didn't get it from his dad, and something about him being so serious with everything we know about Tony tells me that he knows that Peter is up to no good and is fucking with him, and I like that. Yeah, because it's either Tony finally letting his defenses down in a sort of funny, I finally told you everything, 
what do you mean you didn't hear it sort of cliche way? Or they make it work, and I feel like they really make it work here. I think they do. There's things about the sequence that I'm not sure if they work. I don't know how scientific the fairy splitting in half is, nor do I know how scientific it is that he's able to web it back together. I'm not sure how scientific radioactive spider bites are. Okay, true that, true that, true that. Good point. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Do you have anything else on the downing of the Staten Island Titanic? No, but I do love the downing of the scene when he steps out of his armor. I think it's incredible. I love that moment because it's such a punch in Peter's face. He's like, you would really be here instead of sitting a robot. And then Tony's like, nah, I'm in the suit. And Peter just gets this sort of like, it's this mix of, oh shit, dad's here. And also like, my hero's mad at me. But he's still mad. Like, you know, t- Peter's mad too. Peter feels like he's been underutilized. And in a lot of ways, he's told he's above the law last film. And he has made Iron Man's kind of pet project, kind of, you know, dream child. And now he's being sidelined and it would never feel good to be disregarded by the pretty boy. And that's what's happening here. He's being passed on by his dad. I really love that moment where he steps out of that suit. Uh, There's a vine that I've seen because our boyfriend Jonah enjoys vines, so he shows them to me, being the old man that I am. And it's that clip of him yelling at Tony and then Tony stepping out of the suit and they superimpose Tom Holland having a reaction in an interview being like, Oh my god, it's Tony Stark! Because especially after the drone scene where he wasn't there, it was really cool to see him show up. It's important for him to have these face-to-face moments with Peter in this film. Otherwise, why did you bring Iron Man into it? And um, I love if you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. Because yeah, that's fucking right. See, Iron Man 3. That's why I love that movie so much. Because it shows that Tony Stark is still a superhero in his own right, even when All he has to work with is nuts and bolts. I kind of think it would have been nice if Tony had been more upfront. You kind of have been shutting Peter out and not being transparent with him, and that sucks. But that does not justify Peter tearing a Staten Island ferry in half. I agree. You know, I can't help but notice that you're pointing out that Tony Stark could build a suit in the desert! With a box of scraps! Oh my god, it feels like a thousand years ago since we talked about him crawling out of that cave, becoming Iron Man, and telling Pepper he loved her. Yeah, it's... And that's just us doing this podcast. That's just the last, like, three months of our lives. So, ugh. I also want to point out, because Kelo takes the greatest notes in the entire world, Iron Man's entire contribution to this sequence is a minute and five seconds. Yeah, in terms of the Iron Drone sweeping in and Iron Man himself sweeping in to help save the day, yeah, it's about as long as Gwyneth Paltrow's appearance in this film is the amount of Iron Man action that we get. And yet Iron Man is on that super crowded Spider-Man Homecoming poster. That mess. We then get another super cute Peter Parker look where he has his Hello Kitty pajama bottoms and his I Survived New York City t-shirt i feel like someone made a pop funko of that at some point and gave it to tom holland he definitely has one of the rihanna look but i feel like there maybe they even produced a professional one the scene between him and may is really odd there you know i keep laughing throughout watching this movie knowing the twist that it ends with of may finding out and knowing from the international trailer that she seems to be supportive of him being spider-man that they have 
Peter worrying about it early in the film, and then he has this moment with her that's very Buffy season two finale of, I know you sneak out of the house every night. And like, you're letting him do that, Aunt May? What? Yeah, and I think one of the things that sets this scene up is Tony's just taken the suit away, and so Peter feels like not quite a real boy anymore. He feels like this great wonder that he had gotten to make part of his life was taken from him. And now he's going from arguing with Tony Stark about the ocean liner they just saved to basically having like the most traditional guardian child argument ever. And it's this moment where he's so humbled. And so I'm kind of okay with his weirdness in this scene but the fact that she's aware he is sneaking out at night and is just clearly getting the shit beat out of him and she's kind of okay with it maybe isn't the best work you've done aunt may and like what are you doing with your time i don't really feel like i've gotten to know aunt may very well i like what we've gotten of her and i think she's cool i think she's caring i think she probably has a lot going on in her own life having recently lost her husband and peter's a really competent bright smart kid who she knows can take care of himself. She's usually out shopping for high-waisted pants. I guess. She's out being high and wasted. So then we get a sequence of Peter just being a normal high school student. You know, that was fun. It was cute. It was a nice entrance into the third act for the character, for the film, of him trying to find an identity without being backed by Tony Stark. I love Liz's line of you're terrible at keeping secrets because they play it like, oh, it's a joke. He's Spider-Man. No, if someone point blank asked him if he was Spider-Man, he would crumble. Like, he is actually terrible at keeping secrets. The only reason he's able to keep this one is that no one ever asked him. Thank God he didn't ultimately show up at that party because he would have totally fucked up. I agree. I also think that this was a really great way to get us to this whole segment. We're about to roll through some plot at some crazy clip. Peter's going to the dance. He finds out that Liz's dad is the vulture. He comes to realize that his world is about to fall apart. It gets really complicated really quickly. He gets to the dance. He has to leave. Like, it's just jam-packed right away. I was really, really, as I mentioned before, incredibly blown away by the reveal of the vulture being Liz's dad. I thought it was an expertly executed moment from the moment he sees him all of the score disappears from the film and it doesn't return for almost four full minutes it is almost dead silence as peter is standing there practically shaking in front of this super villain who is his crush's father and even as the score slowly returns it's very subtle and it's over five minutes between peter realizing who tombs is and Toombs confronting him in the car, asking, does Liz know? And that is such a huge amount of space to give this sequence, where Peter is just sitting in the car awkwardly watching as Liz's dad is figuring out who he is. It's terrifying, yet it's also comedic, and I think removing the music from it really lets the audience set the tone of that for themselves. You don't know whether to laugh or to cry. That's one of the most amazing things that tom holland plays for this character is his vulnerability not to again get too far ahead of ourselves but later when the building falls on him and he's like crying for help he is again just so vulnerable in a way that i don't feel i saw as much from toby Maguire or andrew garfield 
probably because they were so much older, so much more experienced. They showed emotion well, but I never saw them as a scared kid. I can't help but agree. One of the big things that defines Tom Holland's Spider-Man is that cracking, genuine, sweet voice. It's still confident enough when it needs to be. He plays it well in the suit, but he's got a vulnerability to him the others just can't simulate. And it's in the acting, it's in the writing, it's in the direction. One of the things I noticed on this watch was when he asks Ned for help to track Tombs down, he says, I left my cell phone in his car, we can track my cell phone. He made that decision as soon as he stepped out of that car that he was going to go after Tombs, even though he knew what it could cost him. And that's such strength and such heroism from such a young character. I actually forgot that he's immediately ambushed by Shocker 2.0 and that Ned saves him using the web shooter that he still had with him. That's such a cool moment for that character. One of the things that made that moment so great was it was earnest. It wasn't played up for laughs the way Luis might be played up in Ant-Man. This is my moment. I get to fire this thing now. It is genuinely no get away from my friend. And it doesn't seem to be any sort of, yes, now Ned's going to be Spider-Man's sidekick. Like, he's still going to be Ned. And I could see him working for S.H.I.E.L.D. potentially someday. But we're not supposed to think that he is Sam Wilson. He's just a friend of a hero who's doing the right thing and helping his friend. It's a really nice moment in a really nice friendship that this film gave us. I also, real quick, before we move on from him leaving the dance... I normally hate secret identity tropes and especially things where a secret keeper needs to disappoint the normal people in their lives because of their secret. So when Peter has to tell Liz that he needs to leave, normally I hate shit like that, but he looks so traumatized and he did just come from talking to her dad and especially in retrospect after everything that's going to happen with her father tonight, she could totally believe that her dad went psycho on him and this really doesn't look bad for Peter. And I think that's really funny, a trope that I normally hate, the framing of it here. It, Peter can't look bad. I, I, I appreciate that he apologizes to her later and feels bad, but, you know, especially it looks like her dad just traumatized you. So you really, that was a freebie. A hundred percent. She's still a little too angry at the end of the movie, but her entire life was destroyed, so who am I? Yeah. Finally, Peter figures out exactly what Toombs is doing at about the one hour, 38 minute mark of this film. So we do seem to find that a lot, that we don't know what the ultimate final battle or final conflict, or at least the characters don't, until very late into these films. I don't know if that's bad or good, but it's certainly something that we have noticed a lot, and so you can at least say it's repetitive. I do think that that's part of how Marvel movies are able to come out with the frequency they've been coming out. They understand a format and a structure, and they rebuild the pieces as needed around the hero in question. Spider-Man has a whole lot more civilians could get hurt than most of the other Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, and that's because Spider-Man needs it to function. I get that. I still don't understand if Spider-Man has a spider sense in this film franchise. I think they tried to play up the notion of it in the trailer for Infinity War when we see that moment of Peter on the bus and his arm hair stands on end because there's danger nearby. But he definitely gets super psyched out by Vulture and has a building dropped on him. So that's not very spider sensory. That does lead us to one of the most magical, iconographic moments in Spider-Man history. When Spider-Man needs to get himself out from the wreckage and has to push himself free 
and he's struggling and he's fighting. That is one of the most famous Spider-Man images ever. And it's a great moment. It really worked for me. Like, you know, they wanted you to cheer, come on, Spider-Man for him in the theater. And I would have completely. But then, like, Toombs doesn't even notice that Peter web slings onto his back to hitch a ride up to the plane. I don't know. Maybe it is the fact that there were seven different sets of hands on this film. There are inconsistencies for as much as there are the wonderful, amazing moments. I got a really sad feeling seeing Happy Alone in the Empty Avengers main penthouse, for example. I don't know if we're ever going to even see that set again, so that was a cute touch. By the end of the movie, I am sort of like, oh, the fight here doesn't work. The fight of Vulture versus Spider-Man just seems to be Vulture wailing on Spider-Man till it's Spider-Man gets the upper hand and wins. And, alright, sure, but again, the ending battle leaves a lot to be desired for me here. I think because ultimately Spider-Man is just thwarting a heist. No one is specifically in danger except the people who could be affected by the things that he steals. But all of Manhattan isn't going to blow up. Even the school isn't going to blow up. There's no one who is specifically immediately in danger. He's just stopping Liz's dad from stealing from his boss. So I think that's probably part of what makes the final battle of this film a little less engaging. I also think Tomb's wailing on a 15-year-old is really uncomfortable. Like, you know who Peter is now, and you're really slamming on him. This is the guy, though, that was remorseless when he killed his friend? Yeah, yeah, I know. I also don't love that part of the climax of this film being Peter trying to save Tombs from the devices that are going to blow up and from his own greed. Like, it's a pretty cool, it's a nice touch, but it, it I don't love the adults just don't listen theme of this film because that's not exactly what Tony was doing. Tony just should have been more communicative with you if he was taking you seriously as a superhero and backing you and giving you this high-tech suit to fight crime with. But no, adults don't never listen. The movie wraps up with some really nice touches. I'm so happy that they were able to get Pepper, even if it was only for like 10 seconds. And I was happy they got more happy. It was a really important thing to see the Iron Man crew because they were the team that started it all. And in so many ways, this feels like a fresh start for the franchise. It's a young, reinvigorated cast. And Peter is a scientist and Peter is a genius. And it's fun to imagine him being the next Tony Stark but with way more humility. I feel like it also pays out on the promise that was set up in Civil War. Yeah, I do too. I think it fulfilled pretty much all my hopes for what the first Spider-Man film could have been. I don't know how I feel about Peter guessing that it was a test and then it not being one, the whole you're going to be an official Avenger thing. Because again, Tony, what 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 are you thinking? This is a 15-year-old. And I know that we are all as fans of the Marvel Universe rooting for Spider-Man being a superhero, but how did you think the world was going to react to you announcing that this underage boy is going to sign the Sokovia Accords and start living at the Avengers Mansion? It's a little bit weird. And then I don't know how I feel about the fact that it wasn't a test and they were really all standing behind there. That... I don't know. It just plays me a little bit wrong. It's a little bit too silly. It's a little bit too campy. It makes a lot of the focus at the end of this film on Tony and even Pepper and Happy. Because the last shot that we really get that has to do with Peter that follows this is him finding the suit in his room, putting it back on, and Aunt May seeing him there. Which, again, 
I did not see that coming as far as how the film would end. I thought it was a really fascinating choice. I think it's really cool, and I really hope that the trailers for the next film are portraying accurately how she is reacting to this and that she is supportive because i love supportive supernatural moms joyce summers melissa mccall if your kid is special i like seeing that specialness be supported even if it is dangerous i also think the actual direction of it is one of the best cutoff gags i think cutoff gags are literally one of the funniest things you can do and i think they're one of the hardest things to get just right and they managed to nail it between her what the and the exact moment they cut and the music coming in the way it did, it's really dead on. And especially giving that moment to Marissa Tomei, of all people, really was a cherry on top of that delightful ending. And speaking of the ending, I cannot imagine. I was so impressed by so many things about Michael Keaton's performance. I think everything about this end sequence, where he's like, If I knew who Spider-Man was, do you think I'd be here right now? Birdwing, Birdwing. I think that whole bit is great. Yeah, and it was especially interesting to see knowing now that he's going to be coming back for the next one. I'm not sure where that leaves his character, where it gives him room to come back. You know, he's been very gray throughout these films. He ultimately kind of owes Peter Parker on a few different levels because not only did Peter save him, but didn't turn on him in front of his daughter. So that's, you know, kind of a big deal. I also, speaking of gags that we enjoy, very much enjoyed the final credits sequence featuring, once again, Chris Evans. You can literally see him trying not to laugh as he is talking about the virtues of patience. And one of the best things about this gag is the fact that it really is 11 minutes of credits that you just sat through to get through this, you know? Credit sequences vary in length, film to film, but this was an exceptionally long one to have to wait, and then it was just nothing. I could imagine saying that 10 minutes makes or breaks a film. That's an enormous amount of time to have me sitting in a seat and keep my attention. Those are some really long credits to get to some very short sequences. And I guess that's really all we have to say about Spider-Man Homecoming. That brings us to Thor Ragnarok, which might have had one of the most complicated developments. When the movie began, it was originally going to be another Shakespearean, over-the-top, sort of Thor movie. But Taika Watiti just said, not a chance. This is going to be fun. It's going to be light. And that's what Chris Hemsworth was looking for. He was looking for a chance to be funny as Thor. I remember wishing I'd paid better attention to this movie the first time I saw it, and... I remember being really impressed with all of the performances, but ultimately feeling the Hela and obvious Planet Hulk stuff never really came together. Yeah, I remember this being a very weird film as it came together, no one really being sure how the comedy angle was going to work. It was also very strange because this was the longest gap between MCU sequels that we had seen so far. It's, it was four years between Thor the Dark World and Thor Ragnarok. And frankly, ultimately, I don't feel it connects, but in a positive way. I think the story ultimately uh, is really fun and engaging. I remember when it came out, it was, you know, a knockout hit. Everyone was super pleased with how the comedy aspect and the different pacing and characterization really worked for the film so i'm excited to get into talking about it 
And I feel like Guardians 2 kicked off a run of movies that people were really positive about. Guardians 2, Spider-Man Homecoming, Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, and Avengers Infinity War is a really strong run of films in a row. I feel like Ant-Man, unfortunately, keeps killing the strong film buzz, but I think Avengers Age of Ultron took care of that for Phase 2. We're coming down to the wire here. We only have two more solo films than a team film, two solo films and a team film. We are approaching the end, my friend. We are upon our own Ragnarok. You know, it's funny. As soon as you mentioned Guardians, it brought something up in my head as well, having to do with Ragnarok and the fact that it was such a Marvel cosmic film outside of being an Asgardian film. A lot of people responded well to The Collector and Captain Marvel being a very cosmic film and James Gunn now coming back to the MCU and potentially returning to helming the Marvel cosmic branch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ragnarok gives us a really interesting first look at what we could be seeing much more of going forward in the film franchise. Well, until he picks up that hammer and they crush it to little pieces, Kevo, where on the internet can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also check out our work on our awesome webcomic, Kid Riot, Riot Squad, and Capes and Boots over at KidRiotComics.com. Don't forget to listen to us on X's for Podcasts, where along with our awesome boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle, we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise. I'm also on Now and Again with my childhood best friend Chris, where we talk about, and now that's what I call music, volumes in order. It seems to never really be about music. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to, you should check out cageclub.me and you should look at their Patreon and consider donating and help shape where the network goes from there. Also, you can check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. So, until it's the death of the gods, we'll check you out later. And here's number two. Thwip.